right, you guys can turn to Malachi 3. We'll be finishing up the book of Malachi today. My name is Blake Jennings. If you don't know me, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. It's good to be back with you. I'll actually be with you for the next three weeks, so you'll be seeing a lot of me. Um, As we look at Malachi 3 and 4 this morning, pretty large passage, if you want to understand what this overall passage is about, this big chunk at the end of the Old Testament, our passage this morning is kind of like one of these. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these magic eye posters. It's called a stereogram is the fancy word for it. So it's a a collection of computer generated dots. But if you look at it just right, then a 3D image will pop out and all of a sudden you'll see it. So can anybody actually see the image in this one? It's there. It's pretty hard at the distance that you're at. They're kind of meant to be right in front of you. Anybody see it? Know what's in there? No, if you were close, you would see it. It's a shark. Swimming through the ocean. A shark swimming through the ocean. What's the trick to these magic eye posters? What's the trick to see one of these? Well, the trick is you have to look past it. You have to look past it. There's actually two ways of looking at this image. You you can see the image itself, the dots on the screen. And if that's what you look at, if all you look at is the dots on the screen, then that's all you'll ever see, a random collection of dots. But there's a second way to look at it. You look through the dots, you allow your eyes to come unglued from the image and you extend your focal length so that you're looking through the image and all of a sudden it will pop out at you. You will see it in 3D. So there's two ways of looking at the same image that yield very different results. And that's exactly what our passage is about this morning. Just like with one of these magic eye posters, so with life. There are two different ways of looking at your life that yield very different conclusions and very different ways of living. There's the short-sighted way of looking at life. When you look at life through short-sighted vision, then all you see is is life as it is today. You just see the circumstances, the events, the, the realities of your life as they are right at this moment. All you see is today. That's the the short-sighted way of looking at life. And then there's the far-sighted way of looking at life. You look through the circumstances, the events, the realities of your life today. You look through those circumstances to see life as it will be in the future. You look past today to see life as it will be in the distant future, in eternity. So two ways of looking at the same thing, at your life today, at the circumstances of your life today. You can either see with short-sighted vision and all you see are the events of today, or you look with far-sighted vision and you see through the circumstances of today to the future that is coming. Those two ways of looking at life, two different ways of looking at life, lead to two very radically different conclusions and two radically different ways of living. And that's what we'll see in our passage this morning. We're going to see those two different ways of looking at life, either seeing life as it is today or life as it will be in the future. So let's jump in to Malachi 3. As as, uh, Malachi walks us through this passage, it's it's quite long. It's both chapters 3 and 4 that we're going to look at this morning. It's a lot of material, but it's actually not hard to study at all because it's got a lot of repetition in it. Actually, chapters three and four are are a big cycle that repeats itself. You're going to have one question repeated twice, one answer repeated twice, and one application repeated twice. So we're going to study them together. The passage is framed around one overall question that appears twice. The first time you see that question is in chapter two, verse 17. So look at 217 with me. 
Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? What they're asking in this verse is, where is God's justice in this wicked world? We don't see it. Where is it? Where is God's righteousness? Where is his justice? Where is his punishment of evil? We don't see it. That's the first appearance of the question. They ask basically the same question with different words in chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Look there. 3.13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge? And what have we walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. So what they're asking in this second question is, why should someone serve God? When when there's no reward in it, we don't see God stepping in and rewarding righteousness. It seems like those who are wicked are actually being blessed. Now, on its surface, this question that they ask, two different kinds of ways, but same basic question. It seems like a legitimate question. God, where are you? Where is your righteousness? Where is your justice? We look around and the world is so evil. Wicked people are prospering. Sin goes unpunished. God, where are you in that? That's a good question. We call that the problem of evil. You got whole books, whole theology textbooks written about that question. That's a really good question, but it's a question for a different sermon because that's not actually what they're asking. That's not really the question that they're asking God because I want you to notice, look at chapter three and read verse five with me. This is God speaking. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulteresses and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Skip down to verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. What God is telling us is is that Malachi's audience, they are not innocent victims suffering under the hands of wicked people. No, they are the wicked people. They are the wicked people. They look around at life and they don't see God stepping in and, and punishing sin. They don't see God stepping in and rewarding righteousness. And so they conclude to one another, well, God is not punishing sin. God is not rewarding righteousness. So why don't we... Give in to sin. That's what this question is about. It's not a theological question. Where is God in the midst of evil? It's a practical question. If we don't see God judging sin today, then why shouldn't we walk in sin? Because it's awfully fun. Sin is fun. It's enjoyable. It brings reward. It brings fun into my life at the moment. So if God is not stepping in to do anything about it, then why should we not sin? So you could paraphrase. This is really their question. This is what Malachi chapter three and four are about. They're asking one another, why should we bother obeying God when he lets injustice go unpunished and righteousness go unrewarded? This is what it looks like to live with short-sighted vision. 
what we were talking about earlier with the stereogram. They're living with short-sighted vision. They look at life only as it is today. That's all they see. This 24 hours that I'm living in right now, the world as it is today. And as they look at the world as it is today, what they do not see is God's hand coming in and punishing sin and rewarding righteousness. They don't see God doing that. And so they conclude, if, if God's not here, if God's not busy punishing sin, then why shouldn't we sin? They use God's delay to excuse their sin. And sadly, that's what so many of us in the church do as well. We look at life only as we see it today. We live with short-sighted vision. And at the moment, we don't see God punishing sin. We don't see him rewarding righteousness. And so like Malachi's audience, we conclude, well, so why shouldn't we sin? We use God's delay, the fact that Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years, to excuse sin, just like Malachi's audience did. We begin excusing a whole host of sins, like no big deal kind of sins. Christians excuse these kind of sins all the time. We know something like murder or assault. That's bad stuff. That's big sin. You're going to be punished quickly by the law for that. But what about those little sins that, that no one really cares about? A little bit of speeding, just a few miles over the limit. Uh, Just a little exaggeration when you're telling a story or recounting something to a friend. Just just a a little bit of gossip with someone else. No one really cares about that. That's not a big deal, right? We excuse no one will ever know sins. So we don't see God stepping in right at the moment. We excuse sins that that no one's going to know about. What I look at on my computer at night when no one's watching the things that, that I say when, when no one hears them, when no one's paying attention to them, the, the things I omit from my tax forms, knowing no one's going to ever find out about that. We excuse those no one will ever know sins because no one will ever know. And we excuse the everybody's doing it kind of sins. Those sins that are just the way people live in 21st century America. That TV show that, that we know we shouldn't be watching, but everybody is. That movie that has all that immoral stuff in it. We know we shouldn't see it, but everybody's talking about it and we don't want to look like a prude. And so surely because everyone else is doing it, we can do it too, right? And we use the delay of God's justice to excuse sins of omission. All the others were sins of commission. You do something that's not right. Sins of omission are where you don't do something that you know you should because it's just too hard. God isn't rewarding righteousness right at this moment. So why should I do those things that are hard? Why should I sacrifice and put my wife's needs above my own? And I I did that last week and she didn't return the favor. So why should I do it? It's hard. I'm not really speaking of my own wife. She does that all the time. All hypothetical here. All hypothetical. Why should I give sacrificially to the church? In this economy, really? That takes a sacrifice. Why should I serve in the nursery? Man, my own kids are hard enough. Why should I give up a Sunday morning to serve? It's not like we pay you. So why would you do that? If you live with short-sighted vision, if all you see is life as it is right at this moment, then you will begin to excuse sin. That's what happens inevitably when people live with short-sighted vision. When believers only look at what's happening today, they begin to excuse sin a little at a time until it really adds up. That's what Malachi's audience had done. Because they did not see God punishing sin and rewarding righteousness, at this moment, they excused sin. That's what inevitably happens to us. And so what we need is for our vision to be corrected. 
We need our short-sightedness to be fixed. We need someone to teach us how to see long range, how to see what's coming. That's what Malachi 3 and 4 provides for us. It's like, it's like a corrective prescription from your ophthalmologist. It helps you to see life as it really is. It helps you to, to focus past today and see what's coming. That's where Malachi takes us next. He helps correct our vision. And what he does is give us God's answers to that question. So the question that Malachi's audience was wondering, why should we bother obeying God when he lets sin go unpunished and righteousness go unrewarded? God answers that question twice. They asked it twice, so God answers it twice. So let's look at God's answer to that question. The first answer comes in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What God says is, I am about to send my two messengers. It's a a significant verse. This plays out very significantly in biblical history. The first messenger who will clear the way before the Lord. Who's that? You know this guy. That's John the Baptist. Right? He, he appeared and he cleared the way. He prepared the way for messenger number two, the messenger of the covenant who is called the Lord. Who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Those are the two messengers who would show up. And notice what God says will happen when these two messengers show up. Look starting in verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming, particularly the second messenger, the Lord? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. When the second messenger, the Lord, when he comes, no one will be able to stand before him. The day of his coming will be unbearable. Everyone will be knocked down on their knees before him. And there's a couple things that he's going to do. Look now with me at verse 3. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. As in the former years. So when he comes towards his people, he is going to refine them. When the Lord comes, he will refine his own people. And, and Malachi here uses an interesting image that's common in the Bible, refining or smelting metal. I don't know if you know what that's about. In metallurgy, if you wanted to purify a metal back in ancient times, like, like gold, for example, if you want to make pure gold, what do you do? Well, you heat it up. You get it really, really hot. And when it turns into liquid, all the impurities rise to the surface and you can scrape them off. That's what smelting is. And it's used often of what God will do for us. How God uses pain and discomfort and and discipline in our lives to purify us. This idea of refining and smelting, it's, it's not a comfortable image. It's not fun to be heated up to the melting point so the impurities can be scraped off you. But that's what Jesus is going to do. When the Lord comes, he will refine us and remove the impurities. So that's uncomfortable, but, but it's good at least. It's much better than what he will do to those who are not his people. That's verse 5 we read earlier. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against. That's an image of judgment, of punishment. The sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, when Jesus comes, when the Lord comes, his enemies will be judged. They will be punished. 
So when he shows up, no one will be able to stand before him. All will be put on their knees towards his people. He will refine them towards his enemies. He will judge them. That's God's first answer. Now he's going to tell us basically the same thing in his second answer. Look with me, starting in verse 16, 316. Second answer from the Lord. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. What God says is that this day of judgment is coming. The Lord is coming in judgment and his people on that day will be delivered. He says that in chapter 3, verse 17, and in chapter 4, verse 2, he uses images like healing. On that day when the Lord comes, he will bring healing to his own people. He will restore them and deliver them. But to his enemies, they will get the opposite. They will get destruction. They will be wiped out. He uses the image of chaff being burnt up. Chaff is kind of a funny word to us. It's just hay. That's all it is. It's just hay. So you imagine hay. What happens when you put a, a flame to hay? It burns fast and there's nothing left of it. It just burns up. That's what's going to happen to the wicked, to those who are God's enemies. They will be destroyed in an instant when Jesus arrives, when the Lord comes. That is the day that is coming, the day of the Lord. It will bring healing for the righteous, but it will bring destruction for God's enemies. So let's, let's kind of draw this together in our minds. Malachi's audience is saying, why should we bother obeying God? When we don't see God today punishing sin and rewarding righteousness. And God says, well, because that's about to change. I'm coming. The Lord is coming soon. And when he comes, he will punish wickedness and reward righteousness. Now, Malachi knew that truth. He knew that the day of the Lord was coming. The day when God would make all things right. But Malachi didn't know a lot about that day. Not nearly as much as we do. You see, the New Testament written roughly 400 years after Malachi, it gives a lot more details about what this day of the Lord will look like. A lot of stuff that Malachi didn't know that we do know. So, so let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about this day of the Lord. So Malachi, he's looking at this day when the Lord comes. What do we, by virtue of the New Testament, know about this day of the Lord? Well, the first thing that we know that he did not is that there's actually two of them. That's pretty significant. It's actually two days of the Lord. Old Testament prophets, they didn't know that. The Old Testament prophets knew that the Lord would come and he would deliver, he would save the righteous and destroy the wicked. And they assumed that both of those things would be done on the same day. But God had a different plan, right? You know that God actually understood, God planned that there would be two days of the Lord and the Messiah would accomplish one of those missions on each of those two days of the Lord. The first day of the Lord, when did it happen? Well, right at about 2,000 years ago. 
God's son, Jesus Christ, came. And which of those missions did he focus on? The healing part. He came in humility to to heal, to save, to deliver God's people by dying for our sins and rising from the dead so that we could have eternal life. That was the first day of the Lord. It was a day of salvation, a day of redemption. But a second day of the Lord is coming. Another day of the Lord when Jesus shows up and it will not look like his first coming. Jesus is not coming again in humility to die. He is coming again in power to reign. He will come and he will conquer. He will come and he will destroy all of his enemies. That is the coming day of the Lord. So we, by virtue of the New Testament, we know that there's actually two of them. One of them has passed, the day of salvation. Another is coming, the day of destruction. That's the day of the Lord that we await, the day when Jesus comes to judge and to rule. So that's the first thing that we know, that there's actually two days of the Lord. Second thing we know, the second day of the Lord is imminent. That word imminent, it means it can happen at any moment. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. The return of Jesus is gonna come at a time when no one expected it. Just boom, it's just gonna happen. There will be no warning ahead of time. It is imminent. Imminent means that that it could come at any moment, that there's nothing that has to happen next in history. Before the day of the Lord, nothing has to happen next. It could happen. It could begin this day of the Lord. It could begin before my sermon is over. Some of you think that'd be great. That'd be good. Ready for this to be done. That's okay. I'm with you. I would really like to be done myself. Um, It could happen at any moment. It's been 2000 years, but that doesn't change the fact that it could happen in the next 30 seconds. It's kind of like if you were living in Tornado Alley this summer and you heard the tornado sirens go off. What is that telling you? It's telling you a tornado is imminent. It could happen at any moment and there will be no more warning. There's not gonna be a countdown timer. It could happen at any time. Now it might not, and you might, maybe no tornadoes happen tonight, but it could happen at any moment. And what Paul is telling us is basically the tornado siren has been going off for 2000 years. Still going off right now. If you listen carefully, you'll hear it. It's going off right now and telling you the return could be at any second. It's imminent. The day of the Lord, the second day of the Lord, it is imminent. Third thing that the New Testament tells us about the day of the Lord is it involves a series of events. The day of the Lord is not just one simple little thing. There's actually a series of things we also often call eschatology that, that are coming in the future. All of them together we wrap up and say this is the day of the Lord, this series of events. So let me real quick walk you through this series of events just so you have a sense of what are we looking forward to? What is coming when Jesus returns? Well, the first event, the first event in the day of the Lord will be the rapture of the church. Rapture of the church means we will be called up from earth to meet Jesus in heaven. We will be taken home. God's people will go to be with Jesus in heaven. Paul talks about that event, the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Because this is the first event. This is the one that literally could happen at any second. The rapture could happen before the end of this service. Jesus will call and we will go home. 
We will be resurrected. Our bodies will be perfected. We will join all of our loved ones who died in the Lord, who were believers, and we will be with Jesus in heaven. So that's the next event, the rapture. After that comes the tribulation. The seven-year tribulation, when God pours out his, his wrath, his punishment upon the earth, God is pouring out his wrath during the tribulation for the purpose of drawing Israel, the nation of Israel, back to himself. There's a lot of details in the book of Revelation and in the book of Daniel about the tribulation, but you'll get a sense of it from Matthew 24. For then, these are the words of Jesus, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It will be a terrible time for those left on earth. According to the book of Revelation, billions of people will die during those seven years. A large percentage of the human population will die. And yet amazingly, during that time, some in the midst of that wrath will repent. They will believe the gospel and be saved, but most will not. Most will see God punishing them and still raise their fist and want nothing to do with God. They will remain in open, uh, solidified rebellion against God. And so the great tribulation with all of these rebels on earth will culminate with all of them coming together for one climactic battle. And I'll read that to you. Leave your finger in Malachi and turn to Revelation. Revelation 19. We'll come back to Malachi in just a few minutes. So look at Revelation 19. The next event after the seven-year tribulation is the return of Jesus. When Jesus literally, physically, gloriously comes back to earth. And it's described for us in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. I'll just read a few of these verses to you. Verse 11. And I, that is the apostle John, saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Skip down to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. Skip down to verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's not a very pretty picture. It's given to us in Revelation 19. Jesus comes back, comes back on a white horse. The armies of heaven aren't really with him. They're kind of watching as spectators. Jesus comes to earth and with a sword from his mouth, which is just his words, he speaks a word and all of rebelling humanity dies. All of his enemies in an instant, they all die. His demonic enemies are instantly uh, entrapped. They are imprisoned at that moment. In other words, in an instant, Jesus wins a complete victory over the entire planet. The entire rebelling human race is dead. All demons are imprisoned and Jesus launches into the next stage of eschatology. So once he has returned and won this day of glorious climactic victory, he launches into the millennial kingdom. He sets up his literal kingdom on earth. He will rule over the earth for a thousand years. We're told about that in Revelation chapter 20. So look just a few verses down. Let's look at verse four, chapter 20, verse four. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So Jesus and his people rule over the earth for a thousand years. Maybe that's us included in it. I don't know for sure, but Jesus rules over the earth for a thousand years, fulfilling all of God's promises to the nation of Israel. 
making the earth as it was meant to be, a kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice for a thousand years. But, but people will still be born during that thousand years. And as children are born, they still have a sin nature like ours. And so at some point in their lives, those children will have to decide whether to accept Jesus as their savior or not. Same choice that you have to make. And some, sadly, will choose no. Even though they can see him, they will still say, I don't want that. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, God will release Satan one last time. And he will gather all of those who said, I don't want that. And lead them in one final military assault against Jesus that won't work out very well for them. Uh, That's the final event of world history, judgment and hell for the lost. Look with me. John talks about that. Chapter 20, verse 11. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. This earth, this universe disintegrates when God shows up for judgment. It's destroyed. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from these things, which were written in the books according to their deeds. Skip down to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Unbelievers stand before the great white throne and they are judged and their names are not found in the book of life. The book of life is the book where God writes down the names of every person who accepts the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. Well, they didn't. They said, I don't want that. And so because their names are not written in the book of life, another book is opened, the book of deeds. And when we are judged based on our deeds, what is the guaranteed result? Punishment. Punishment, because we never measure up. Our deeds are never good enough. And so they are punished. They are judged and condemned by God and they are cast into hell. That's, that's a hard truth. That's a hard doctrine to wrestle with. It's helpful for me to think of it this way. During their lives, these are the people who rejected God's love. And whether they had heard the gospel or not, they knew God. They saw him in creation. They saw that he is a good and loving God. And they said, I don't want that. I do not want God's love. And so in the next life, God grants their wish. It's okay. You didn't want my love. And so I will withhold my love from you. I will send you to the one place where my love isn't. That's hell. It's a place where you experience only God's justice for all eternity. He grants them their wish and they are condemned to hell and punishment for all of eternity. That is the reality that faces those who reject Jesus. Now, for those of us who embrace Jesus, who accept the free gift of eternal life, our eternal fate will be very different. For us, we look forward to heaven and our eternal reward. John speaks about that beginning in chapter 21. Look at 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed. Passed away. So when the millennial kingdom ends and God has finished judging unbelievers, what happens for us is that God creates a second time. He creates a new earth, a perfected earth. And this earth is different than the earth you live on now because this new earth has heaven sitting on top of it. 
Heaven and earth are joined together. God lives with us forever in a perfected place. The new heavens and the new earth, they are one. And in this new heavens and the new earth, we are rewarded. Our obedience to God in this life is rewarded. Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians 3. He's talking about believers, about us. He says, each man's work, our our deeds in this life, either serving Jesus or choosing to sin, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, you get to heaven not based on your deeds, but based on faith. You're in heaven because you trusted in Jesus as your savior. But now that you're in heaven, Jesus judges you. He evaluates you. How did you live? Did you live as his disciple, walking in truth, walking in obedience, or did you live in sin? If you lived as his disciple doing good works, then Jesus graciously, joyously rewards you. He gives you reward that you will enjoy for all eternity. I don't know what that reward is. I just know the Bible's clear. It'll be great. You will want it. Instead, if you have lived in sin, if you have not served Jesus, you're still saved yet as through fire. What does it mean to be saved as through fire? Think about someone whose house burns down. They barely make it out. They're bodily okay, but they don't have anything with them, nothing to show. That's what it'll be like if you stand before Jesus and you've not walked in obedience. You'll have nothing to show for your earthly life. You will miss out on eternal reward, saved yet as through fire. So this is what is coming. A number of events that are in store in the future. The day of the Lord, the New Testament tells us it actually refers to a lot of events as God makes all things right. What Malachi wants us to understand, what God wants us to understand is, yeah, his justice has not come yet. His reward has not come yet, but it's about to. It's about to. And when it comes, when God shows up, there is only one way to survive the day of the Lord. Only one way, and that's through faith in the gospel. That's the only way to make sure that you're on the right team when he shows up. That you receive heaven and reward rather than hell and judgment. The gospel is the good news that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's standard. And so he sent his own son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to take our punishment in our place. The reason you don't have to go to hell is because Jesus took that punishment for you. You don't have to face it. Jesus took your punishment and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death on your behalf. And now he offers you the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness. If you'll simply accept it, if you'll simply say, yes, I want that. I want God's love. I want his forgiveness. I want his life as a free gift. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. They tell us in John 5, 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. The great news is if you have believed that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you have already passed out of judgment. You will not face condemnation. You are in no threat of hell. You are guaranteed eternal life. Jesus is the one and only way to make sure that on the day of the Lord, you belong to him. You are delivered, redeemed, saved, and rewarded. If you've never had that moment in your life where you recognize that God's love is not something to earn, that heaven is not something to work for, 
that it's a free gift that comes to you with no strings attached. Just receive it. Just believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead to give you eternal life as a free gift. If you've never believed that, if there's something holding you back, please come talk to me or someone else here today. There's nothing that matters compared to that. That is the most important thing you will ever think about in your entire life because it determines your eternity. Heaven and hell are at stake. So think about that truth, the gospel. It's the only way to survive the day of the Lord. Okay, so with the reality of this coming day of the Lord on our minds, with this reality that Jesus is coming back to make all things right, how then should we live? That's where Malachi goes next, to the application. God lays out for us two applications. The first is found in chapter three. Look with me, verses seven and eight. Back to Malachi. Chapter three, verses seven and eight. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. They were robbing God by not giving graciously and generously to God. They were not giving to God's temple. They were not giving to God's kingdom, to his work. And God took that seriously. They were living with short-sighted vision. They saw how much money they had. They saw the needs that they had and they decided to hold all their money for themselves rather than give anything to God. And God said, you're stealing from me. You're cheating me because I gave you that money. It's my money. It's not your money. You need to give to me. You need to give generously. That's what people do when they have farsighted vision. People who recognize that Jesus is coming back, that he will punish sin and reward righteousness, they give to God generously. That's what God calls us to do. Give generously. Why? Because when you give to God in this life, he promises to reward you in the next life. It's a promise of God. First Corinthians three, he will reward you if you give now. It's a lot of people out there who preach the prosperity gospel, give money to God and he'll give money to you. Man, they are, they are so wrong. They're not wrong in the theory of it. They're wrong in the timing of it. God doesn't promise to give you money in this life if you give him money now. What God says is, I will reward you, but it'll be in the next life. When you stand before Jesus, he will honor you and give you some kind of glory, some kind of glorious reward that will be wonderful, that will make it all worth it. Sacrifice now for the reward you will have later. That is farsighted vision. You see the reward that is coming and it empowers you to give generously, cheerfully to God's work to his people, to his church, to those in need, to missions, to ministries. So give generously, obey God in our giving. The second application he gives us at the end of the book, chapter four, verse four, God says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. This is the blanket command at the end of the book. Obey God in every way. Obey the entire Mosaic law. That's what the nation of Israel was under. You are not under the Mosaic law. You're not Israel. You are under the law of Jesus. The commands that Jesus taught you, you are to obey all of them. That's what Malachi is saying to us. That's what God is saying to us. The person who lives with farsighted vision that realizes that Jesus is coming to punish wickedness and reward obedience, you you choose to obey. Farsighted vision doesn't excuse sin. Farsighted vision says, man, Jesus is coming and so I'm going to obey him. I'm going to strive to obey in every way, all of his commands. Now, let me end on a practical note. How do, how do you do that? It's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to walk in obedience, especially 
realizing that Jesus hasn't come back now yet in, in 2,000 years. So it feels like it's been a long time, doesn't it? So it's kind of hard to believe it's going to happen at the end of this sermon, although I hope it does. So, so how do you, practically speaking, motivate your heart to walk in obedience when you're tempted in sin? Uh, this is how I do it. This is what helps me. I ask myself a question on a regular basis. I just got to get in the discipline of doing this. I ask myself a question. If Jesus shows up right now, because he can, he can. He should go up right now watching exactly what you are doing at this moment. If he shows up right now, will he be pleased with what I'm doing or will I be ashamed of what I'm doing? Use that question to filter everything that you do. Should I go see that movie? Well, if Jesus shows up at the midway point of that movie, am I going to feel pleased that, that he's seeing me do that or am I going to feel ashamed? Uh, this relationship that you have and the conversation you're having with your friend, the stuff that you're talking about. If Jesus shows up and listens right now at, at this moment, will he be pleased by what you're talking about or will you feel ashamed? When you're on your computer and you're doing this or that, if Jesus shows up at this moment and sees what you're looking at at your computer, will he be pleased or will you be ashamed? When you're handling your money, when you're balancing the checkbook, when you're paying your taxes, if Jesus shows up at that moment, Will he be pleased or will you be ashamed? That's such a helpful question because it is not hypothetical. If you believe that the Bible is true, then that question isn't hypothetical because he could return at any moment. All of a sudden, he will be there seeing what you are doing. Now, he truly, he always sees it, but, but he'll be there and he'll be looking at you and you'll be looking at him. And will he be pleased or will you be ashamed? Really helpful question to ask yourself. I think that the other thing that I do on a, on a frequent basis that I've found really helpful in my life is to practice visualizing. Visualizing what that day will be like. It's a technique that I learned actually in college. Uh, I was a believer, not really walking with the Lord. When I was in college, um, I found that some classes were harder than others. There was this one, I was in engineering, it was fluid dynamics and it was really hard. I really disliked the class, really hated it. Um, but I, I did well in it. Actually, I got an A in it. And the reason I got an A in it is because on a regular basis, I would imagine, I would visualize what will my life look like when I'm handed that diploma and I have good grades? What will life look like when I sit down at that interview for the job I want and I get to tell them that I did well in this class? What will it look like? I I would visualize this is what my office will look like when I have that job. This is the home I will be able to buy. This is the feeling of a paycheck in my hands. I would visualize what my life will be like if I persevere through this class. That is a discipline that we should learn when it comes to the Christian life. We should practice visualizing what that day will be like when we see Jesus. It's one of the most helpful things that you can do. I've really found this helpful for myself. When you feel temptation coming on, so so temptation is starting to grab hold of you, you're feeling it sink in, stop for a moment, close your eyes and imagine, what is it gonna feel like on that day when I stand before Jesus Christ? Let's practice it right now. Close your eyes. Imagine that you are standing before Jesus. So, so you're a believer, you're in heaven by faith. So you got there just by believing in the gospel. But, but now that you're in heaven, you stand before Jesus and it's time for, for your judgment, for your evaluation. And so you come before Jesus and picture him. It's, it's very helpful actually. The book of Revelation tells us a lot about what Jesus will look like on that day. When you see him in heaven, it tells us that, that his body is, is shining like molten metal. 
He is so radiant, in fact. His body is so bright and so hot that you can't stand in front of it. You fall to your knees. Just picture that. You fall to your knees. That's what John the Apostle did. He's far more holy than me. And yet he fell to his knees before the molten metal body of Jesus. He falls to his knees and then slowly open your eyes and look up. And you can't look at the body, but you look above the body and you see that face and you see those eyes. And they are clear and they are calm, but they are piercing You know that he can see right through you. He can see into you. He can see all the things that you have ever done. He can see all of your secrets. He can see the things that you did in the dark when no one was looking. He can see the things that you said that no one heard. He can see the the thoughts that you had that you kept to yourself. He sees all of it. And now with that image in your mind, now you face a choice. Today, will you choose to add something ugly, something shameful, something sinful to the list of things that Jesus will see on that day? Is that what you want to do right now? You want to put something shameful on the table that he will see when you stand before him? Or will you choose obedience? Will you choose today to do something that, that when he sees you, it will bring a smile to his face, what you did right now? That is the choice that you face each and every day. You can open your eyes. That's what I would encourage you guys to do. When you feel temptation, come and grip your heart. Imagine, close your eyes, visualize what it will be like to stand before Jesus. That actually is what the book of Revelation is about. Book of Revelation has more description of what Jesus looked like than any other book. But it's not humble Jesus. It's not carpenter Jesus. It's not Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus glorified and in power. John spilled a lot of ink to describe what he would look like so that we can imagine it, so that we can visualize it because there's great motivation there. When I picture that day, it makes my sin inexcusable. It makes obedience necessary. Great motivation when we visualize that day. What I'm encouraging you to do very simply is live every day in light of that day. Live each and every day of this life in light of that day. That day which could be today. It could come at any moment when you stand before the glorified and exalted Jesus Christ and fall to your knees. Live every day in light of that day. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son once for salvation. That the son of God, the perfect God came to earth and took on human flesh and and in humility died for us. He took our sins upon himself and died so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you that he came the first time to save, but thank you that he's coming the second time to judge. He is coming to make all things right. He's coming to make an end of sin and evil, to judge Satan and his demonic armies. He is coming to fix all that we have broken. Thank you for that hope. I pray, Father, that you would help us to believe that that could come at any moment. I pray, Father, that we would hear those tornado alarms going off right now, that the rapture could happen at any second, and that we would live accordingly that we would choose today to live in light of that day that's coming, that we would choose to obey, that we would run from sin, that we would seek righteousness. Thank you, Father, that you have saved us. Thank you that you have filled us with your spirit and empowered us to obey. I pray that we would choose to walk by your spirit, to follow Jesus, to honor you in every way. In Jesus' perfect, worthy, and powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.